внимание говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. Last week's so-called election to the State Duma was a dress rehearsal for Vladimir Putin's next political project, securing his continued rule until 2036. And this project is unfolding amid a backdrop of mounting discontent with the status quo in society and an escalating crackdown on dissent from the Kremlin. Putin has already ruled longer than any Russian or Soviet leader since Joseph Stalin, and he doesn't appear to be going anywhere soon. But he's lost the youth, he's lost the cities, he's lost the urban professional classes, and he is losing the working class. So what happens now? Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from lovely Boston, Massachusetts, my mother's hometown, is veteran Russian scholar, political analyst, and journalist Vasily Gatov, a visiting scholar at the University of Southern California's Annenberg Center of Communications, Leadership and Policy, and the author of a forthcoming book on censorship in the Russian media. Welcome to the Vertical, Vasily. It's great to have you on, finally. Hi, Brian. Very nice to be with you. Good, good, good to have you. So, Vasily, you, you track Russian domestic politics pretty closely. Uh, back in 2019, you authored one of the chapters for a report for the Free Russia Foundation on prospects for Russia in 2030, in which you laid out some optimistic potential scenarios for the future. Um, I like optimism. Um, you placed a lot of hope in the post-Soviet generations, which you define as those born after 1982. Today, we seem to have a situation in which these generations have, in fact, come of age and have turned against Putin on one hand, and in which Putin is determined to stay in power and, will, and, has, and has the will to ramp up the repression in order to do so on the other. So we kind of have a standoff. Um, we're also in this crucial period between this month's so-called State Duma elections and 2024, the crucial year of 2024, when Putin will attempt to secure a fifth term. How do you see all this going forward? Um, do you stand by your optimism uh, that you had a couple of years ago? And how do you see the standoff playing out? Um, it's difficult, as always in Russia, to say that you understand what is going to happen. And what is the future of, oh, uh, of, of, of this country, this nation, and uh, its posture in the world? On the other hand, Russians always joke that the past is more unpredictable than their future, <laughs> because it can always be reinterpreted uh, in some way. Uh, I think I would stick with my optimism about generational change and general demographic shift in Russia. Uh, although this optimism has um, drifted away from uh, what would be seen as a liberal democratic future. Uh, first, what we have, even without uh, sort of clever voting or vote smart idea of uh, Navalny and his, um, and, and his allies, uh, is a significant left-leaning 
groups of younger people. It, uh, the support for Communist Party and other kind of left-leaning organizations uh, has grown, especially in Russian provinces. Uh, it's becoming much more, um, I don't know how to, to formulate that, not not robust, but it's becoming more ideological. People are turning to kind of left ideas and uh, social equality and uh, justice uh, from the left perspective. I mean that 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 the the state must care about them, and the current Putin state doesn't. Uh, so that's that's one correction to my views from two years ago. The second correction is that many of observers, myself included, thought that uh, for Putin regime, there are some limitations of internal use of power and kind of um, oppression of uh, dissent. Seems like these limits have had been abolished and uh, literally nothing stands now between Putin's desire to stay in power for many more years and, and actually his kind of clique desire to stay in power and uh, broader and more kind of serious political repression. That is very concerning. I'm, I want to unpack some of these things you said because you, you, you raised an issue that I, I had our mutual friend Konstantin Eggert um, on the podcast last week to kind of do the, the, the setup for the elections. And, and Kostya wrote a piece uh, for, for, for Snob recently which he made this exact same argument that you made that the the youth is turning in this in this left direction um and i'm wondering about a couple of things about this and we did see that bear out in the elections the communist party's vote total uh, went up um i think they j just shy of 20 percent i believe they got i'm wondering how much of that had to do with smart voting and people just choosing the communists because that that was that was the candidate that had the most chance or if that was out of some kind of ideological affinity also, I would add that I mean the left the left in general is not incompatible with liberal democracy actually. Um, so, do you see a is that a necessary contradiction there? You said you're less optimistic about the prospects in the long run for liberal democracy, and one of the reasons was that the um, that that the uh, the youth is kind of turning left. I, I'm not sure I see a contradiction there. Uh, well, first, I mean I need there are not. Two, but three questions in, in what you yeah, you I'm sorry. Asked. <laughs> uh, I'm unpacking. Uh, and, and I'll try to answer the third question. Uh, uh, is the is the kind of this left turn, which is definitely more than twenty percent uh, of of the uh, the Communist Party's share in elections, because let's let's put it this way, everywhere where elections were not rigged or were rigged at, the, at a minimal level, communists received far more than 30% of the vote. And in some places outscoring Russia or United Russia, mm -hmm. uh, like Yakutia and several other regions of Russia. Uh, and, uh, and also you must, I must underline that all these regions where Yedinaraisia where was defeated by communists are very young in terms mm -hmm. of demographic composition. Uh, so it's not uh, uh, it's not what believed like pensioners always vote for communists. No, uh, it's definitely the younger vote that that, 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 that shifted the, 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 the wave for communists there. Uh, is 
communism or kind of left-leaning or even even hard left parties incompatible with liberal democracy they are compatible if they play by the rules mm. uh if if they emerged like a significant political power uh after the liberal democratic rules were established mm. uh if they establish the rules this is not liberal democracy because right. uh well regardless which type of the society societal organization they choose uh, would it be marxian or lenin uh this is this is the idea of dictatorship of the proletariat that means dictatorship of the party that uh, pretends to be a party of the working class uh, is not compatible with liberal democracy at all how do you how do you view these kind of this new wave of communist uh, uh, leaders like Nikolai Bondarenko, uh, the speaker of the Saratov State, State Duma, who's kind of seems to be a, a rising star on the left in Russia at the moment? Yeah, I mean he's not the only one. I mean there is also uh, Rashkin, uh, Ivan Milnikov, uh, leaders of the Moscow City Organization of the Communist Party. Yeah, I mean, like Mikhail Labanov, a great mm. Russian uh, young politician who emerged during the elections. Uh, these people generally are much more in line with the uh, kind of European social democratic uh, mm. style of left left organization views. Uh, and uh, they definitely don't share uh, Gennady Zhuganov, the leader of the uh, right. Communist Party, this strange mix of ideas between orthodox church and communism uh, uh and they actually don't don't support the version of history that all leadership of the uh, communist party suggests is right mm -hmm. like uh, that, that's and that's clear that the shift of generations will bring more and more young people to, mm -hmm. to the leadership of the party especially on regional level um and Bandarenko is definitely one of the good examples here because um, he's clever, he's charismatic, he does play by the rules on one hand, on the other hand he is energetic, that's a good example. So I would say, I'm not saying it's 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 good or bad, it's not to be the, this binary question, mm -hmm. it's just a trend that should be persistently observed. But we should. I mean, what, you you seem to agree with Kostya Egert that if the 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 thing that is going to challenge kind of the Putin regime is probably going to come from the left. It's not going to be come from kind of a a liberal democratic perspective. It's not going to come from a Navalny kind of hybrid of liberal liberal democratic and nationalism. It's going to come from this this more leftist um, orientation. Is that is, am I am I reading you correctly? Yes. Uh... I mean, in the short term or mid, mid, middle term, yeah, I mean, like in the next mm. five years, uh, if liberal part of the politicum and left part of the politicum will find a common ground and agree on common candidates, they will be the most dangerous challengers mm. or challenger right. uh, to, to Putin's regime, much more than coming alone from either left part or from mm. um, kind of liberal liberal nationalistic uh, groups like Navalny. Uh -huh. Now, th this all assumes that there's going to be a viable challenge to the regime. And, it, and I, at the way I'm looking at it right now is I, I, I have a hard time imagining 
a serious viable challenge to the regime at the moment. Now, of course, regimes like Putin's always look rock solid until the moment they fall. But they, as you know, as you noted in your remarks earlier, they they've shown a willingness to kind of dial up the repression past limits there that they you know they're, they're passing limits that they previously would not pass. How do you see this playing out in 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 the short term in the long term? I mean, how is a how could a challenge possibly come to this regime if this regime is willing to kind of cross limits they previously wouldn't cross? Well. It's it's an interesting question, and again, it's about unpredictability. And in this case, the factors that determine uh, this kind of muddy waters of the future um, are are numerous. Putin's own health, his cognitive ability to rule, which is which is even more important than his health. Uh, the growing age of sort of closing closer allies who uh, are getting not only older but they also getting uh, getting more difficult to deal with for uh, their subordinates because mm-hmm. I mean uh, even, I mean you can see for example sometimes how difficult for pragmatic Mishustin uh, the Prime Minister Mishustin, mm-hmm. to deal with the people from Security Council, namely Nikolai Patrushev, because everything what Patrushev says and does goes against the mild reformist packages that uh, Mishustin tries to, to, to implement through the government perspective. And the changes that now will create the necessity to um, discuss, the at least discuss, and, and uh, the government composition in Duma, which was not necessary before, uh, before the constitutional change mm-hmm. of 2020, will create an open, well, I, I presume they could create an open conflict between these two parts of Russian leadership. So that's the first thing, the, the first two, two factors. The third factor, which is becoming more and more important, is that, uh, that Putin still needs this uh, national mandate to rule rule Russia, right. and you mentioned it in the beginning of the of the podcast that uh, it's still the question of 2024 elections and the presidential elections, unlike Duma elections, are more difficult uh, always because uh, because you cannot create the uh, kind of the noisy atmosphere when everything is mudded. I mean, it's mm-hmm. clear either it's Putin or somebody else, right? And, uh, and 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 for Kremlin, the 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 most dire result of what had happened just happened in Moscow and Russia in general, is that there is a chance that within next two three years, the lefter part of opposition and the kind of the liberal part of opposition will find common ground in challenging Putin because that would create a situation when either they will have to go uh, and completely falsify the elections like go the uh, uh, kind of the Kadirian way uh, or they have to take this challenge and create a lot of uncertainty and a lot of zones of conflict even within its own government. 
No, this is. I mean, you raise a lot of things here, and I want to. I want to die. And you brought up the 2024 question, which is something I absolutely want to talk about. I want to come. I want to go to that first, and then go start unpacking some of the things you're raising here about the, how unified the elite is, how resilient the opposition is, where society is, and so on and so forth. But first, let's start with 2024, because I've been thinking about this a lot, and every. Every Russian election that I watch, and I watch the increasingly blatant uh, levels of falsification, that that the, the regime doesn't even seem to care that people are noticing this. Um, and I'm wondering at some point if they might come to the conclusion, why bother with the charade of an election? Why not legitimize Putin through some other mechanism, some more Soviet form of mechanism? You know, you said, um, you know the the uh, the idea of having having the president elected by the parliament, for example, is another by the Duma is another is one possibility. Um, do you see them kind of? How do you see 2024 playing out? How do you what what is the regime? How do you see the regime going into this? Because this is what this is starting right now. This is the Duma that's going to decide that. Uh, Putin managed by hook or by crook to get the Duma he wanted, more or less. Um, how do you see this going forward in the, the mechanism of him securing another term in 2024? Well, we're speaking about the future, yeah? We're yes. speaking about, uh, about uh, the situation that is more than three years from us. Uh, so there is no kind of forecast available uh we only can see the trends and what mm -hmm. you say say is kind of a logical continuation of the trends like if these elections uh produce so much uh trouble and especially kind of unpredictable problems i mean the problems under the hood uh then the the, the simplest thing would be to change the legal framework and exclude the national poll at all uh, in the critical moment. It is possible, but unlikely, mm. in my opinion. First, because it would radically change uh, the nature of mandate that Putin holds. And I don't think he uh, is keen to do that. He mm. wants to have at least kind of a a signifier a signifier a signifier yeah of this mandate in terms of semantics yeah and in the other in the other variant he would be kind of his mandate would come from the elite and not from the people yes that um, yes and that that would that, that would radically change for him mm. many things so i don't think that sort of from philosophical point of view that putin is prepared for that he would have done it much earlier in 2020 was the time I expected him to do such a thing. Remember all of the talk about the revival yeah. of the, the yeah. Gross-Soviet and all of that yeah. to, to create a new post for Putin. Yeah, and, and definitely Putin uh, will uh, – and Putin will definitely not go uh, Nazarbayev's way here. Mm -hmm. uh, not only because um, he does not have a legacy of Nazarbayev uh, in terms of uh, his political history. He's not right. the first president. He's not – Yilbasi, he's right. not he's not kind of the unified leader of the nation, and then mm. I think the last one is the most important. Uh, so uh, stepping aside uh, into some kind of controlling but not first position 
is not his choice as well. Yeah, no, that, this is something I had expected him to maybe try to do. I mean, I called it the Deng Xiaoping variant. It's also the Nazarbayev variant. It's this, this is this sense of stepping into this higher national leader, not elected post. Uh, it's the Ayatollah variant, if you want to use the, 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 the Iranian. But he's had opportunities to do that again and again and again, and he's chosen not to do it. I think you're, you're right about that. So you seem to think he's going to continue with this popular mandate uh, to legitimize yes. Yes, the 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 only thing that uh, could 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 completely turn these elections into monkey circus would be that they uh, will completely like make it digital. Like they they will they will say, I mean, <laughs> you vote on some site, uh, and then we give you the result, and, right. and you you don't know what's happening in this black box. You don't know how the votes are counted. You don't have any data. Or you have abundance of data, but this data is uncheckable. I mean, you can't right. check it. Uh, and and then and and then you just get the result that Putin received what eighty-two percent of the right, vote. Right. And um, which seems for me more likely than anything else. Mm, mm. That that is a form of political exclusion that uh, is easy to construct, and new combination of state Duma is a perfect place to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looks kind of e- innovative. I mean, mm-hmm. we... well, yeah, the Estonians do it. No, no, they, they don't falsify in Estonia. They have free and fair and honest elections. But they, you know, you know how Russian elites like to say, "Well, this is what they do in Estonia, or this is what they yeah, do in Germany, yeah. or this is what they do in America." Yeah, so that... yeah that's so, so. That's that's more possible than anything else. Uh, the only problem is that uh, there'll be a, a large number of people. Uh, in the top leadership with the direct knowledge that this thing is completely false. Yeah, uh, but it, I think everybody would know intuitively that it's completely false. Yeah, but, 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 but the difference is that some people will know for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and again, I mean, this, this is not a thing that you can conduct as a spezzeperazze. Spe- spe- yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, this is, this is the thing that, that should be done institutionally, and institutional fraud is a very dangerous thing for uh, personalist regimes. I mean, we know it's from history. Yeah? I mean, when 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 people uh, with uh, uh, long personal power uh, needed to retain it with the tool of the massive fraud, they usually were punished for that. I mean, almost every time every time that happened. Well, let, let's do a little thought experiment here. Then, it's, it's, you know, imagine the current trends continue, and the current trends of legitimizing Putin will continue to be through these like fake elections and fake popular mandates. The the falsification will become increasingly blatant and brazen, um, possibly through this this uh, this this uh, this perversion of online voting. Let's say that trend continues, and let's say the trend in society continues where the regime continues to lose support. Again, it's already lost the youth, it's already lost the cities, it's already lost the urban professional classes, and it is quickly losing the working class. Um, the, the most credible statistical analyses I saw on, on, on the actual vote was that United Russia got about 30%. Um, that's what that's about what they got according to the vote, which basically squares with the credible public opinion polls that were coming out of Levada uh, prior to the election. So let's imagine these two trends continue. 
what do what do we end up with? Do we end up with a period of protracted stagnation like the late Brezhnev period where nobody really believed in the regime, but nobody really had the strength to challenge it? Or do we get into kind of a revolutionary situation? Because under the scenario you're painting here, there is no way to beat this regime at the ballot box. Right. There isn't. There just isn't. If, you, if this continues, um, if they can just falsify, if they can just make up results, you know, from this this black box of, 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 of Russian style online voting. I don't want to malign online voting in general because some countries like the Estonians do it and manage to have extremely honest elections. Um, but if there is no way to win at the ballot box and the regime has lost the support of a critical mass of the society, do we have a period of stagnation or do we have a period of are we entering kind of a revolutionary period? Um, I would not use the word revolutionary. Okay. Uh, I would uh, I would use uns- kind of uh, less radical description of un- unstable situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it it's the the revolution generally is uh, kind of a, a, a forceful revolt. Mm-hmm. Of certain groups of population against other groups of population, mm-hmm. the hegemonic group. Uh, in Russia, the problem is that you cannot clearly define uh, hegemon in, uh, in 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 either present or even kind of recent situation. I mean, is Putin the hegemon? No. Uh, even even his power has limitations. I mean, both both vertical and horizontal. I mean, is the kind of the leadership, this kind of extended Politburo that uh, surrounds Putin, is the collective this, Putin, yeah. the collective Putin? No, they aren't because they they're not plenipotentiary uh, rulers of the country. There are regions that continue to conduct fa- free and fair elections. That there are places where where legally the kind of the, the power changes and they can't do anything even with falsifications. Maybe. Well, they did, some, they did something in Habarovsk. <laughs> yeah, they did. But when, let's say a uh, year ago in Moscow, I mean, they, they employed a lot of tools, but it still was very clearly uh, perceived as, as, as a major loss for mm-hmm. a ruling party. Uh, that... Uh, together, I mean, creates a certain problem in diagnosing the situation and, and in, in situation in Russia. Yet, I would also ask you and I mean ask our listeners and and everyone. I mean, do we understand what Russian military think as as a part of society? Do we understand what these people are about? Uh, what's the what's their opinion on what's happening? Do they think that they receive the share of national wealth that they consider kind of relevant to what they do? Now, historically, the military stayed out of politics in Russia. Yes, but 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 the, uh, I mean, uh, in the recent in the recent uh, piece, I mean, research piece for uh, f- for uh, Chatham House, Kay Gills, Gills, I mean, uh, wrote a very important thing. They, the shift that happened with Russian army since 2010 to, to present day is something that never happened before. I mean, uh, what is now Russian military is completely different organization and force than what it was uh, during Soviet times and, and, and early Russian. 
it's much more modern. It includes people who are uh, in the rank and file positions at much younger age. Like, literally, the, the, I mean, Gerasimov and Makarov are the last generals now within the leadership of the army who've been born and raised in Soviet Union. Uh-huh. All the others are younger. And you think that means they might be a little bit more brazen and assertive? And definitely these people are are different. They're, mm-hmm. they, 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 they don't carry uh, this bagage of the Soviet... Uh, Soviet uh, apolitical military. Yes, not only apolitical, but the the military who were uh, forcefully dissuaded to be political. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, uh, well, you may remember, I mean, uh, General General Rochlin, who was killed, I mean, assassinated for, uh, well, supposed attempt to devise a military coup Mm -hmm. during Yeltsin time. Uh, and, 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 and as soon as Russian general, a Russian high-ranked officer, uh, uh, was becoming political, even after retirement, I mean, the system was definitely playing very hard with this person. General Lebed is another yeah. example yeah. of that. Yeah. So you seem to be, I mean, if going, I mean, I know it's not a simple dichotomy, but I, but I'm, it's a spectrum. But on, from on one side of the spectrum, you have this protracted Brezhnevian period of stagnation, where you yes. have a society that no longer you know, likes this regime, but a regime that clearly ain't going anyplace. That's one side. The other side, you don't like, I mean, not, I guess not revolutionary, but kind of destabilizing chaos on the other side. Yep. Where do you fall on that spectrum? I've, up until now, I fell on the side of stagnation, but I'm, I'm wondering now. Yeah, I mean, it's more likely that kind of the nature of Putin regime will will, 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 will continue to uh, to stay in um, well not radical that way so mm. I mean let people live their lives uh, let people get money property and so on but they have to understand stay out of politics stay out of the questions of power stay out of um, agenda uh, and then you'll fine. You'll be fine. And uh, sort of dissuading citizens to be citizens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, mm, that's that's pretty powerful policy. And uh, standing against it uh, in 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 collective view of uh, conformists is very close to the crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that may kind of define this new stagnation uh, of uh, this this decade, which, on the other hand, I don't think will 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 last long because, uh, well, people, although people don't like dynamics in kind of in in their in their lives, but they kind of are tired when this dyna- dynamics is not possible, so. Mm. One of the reasons that Brezhnevian Soviet Union started to collapse uh, was the fact that, 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 that thousands and thousands and thousands of younger people uh, realized that this regime is not making their life kind of open. Mm-hmm. That, 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 that so much of the, of the future is just written in the books 
where you come from, what education you have, are you a member of the party, have you been making concessions to like KGB and so on, and and that makes makes your future predictable, and and that defined uh, kind of this strange passiveness of the Soviet society when uh, when it started to crack. I mean, I I lived through it. I mean, mm-hmm. I, 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 I I I was at, graduated from high school in 1982. I served in the army. I mean, I was drafted uh, soon after um, uh, Cal 007 accident, mm-hmm. and I served in the same uh, same uh, system of the strategic radio intelligence that, uh, well, that is to blame for Cal mm-hmm. 007 accident. And, uh, and 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 I saw how this this whole thing deteriorated in my eyes. I mean, how how the the mighty Soviet army was becoming a kind of a well, I think it's Roger McDermott's term, the, the military bardak. Yeah. Right. I mean, <laughs> uh, and 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 and, um, and the same was happening everywhere. It was happening in KGB. It was happening in intelligence. It was happening in par- in the party. Because people were losing their expectation of change, and uh, 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 on a personal level, and then mm-hmm. somehow with Gorbachev's occasional words—I mean, not even policies—it wasn't policies in 1985. It was like a cork opener. It was like boo, and right. the whole situation went uh, off, off limits. Very soon. Now, very now, in this situation, you you describe that. that I mean, I, I like the way you describe that. How how this process worked in the late Soviet Union. This time around, unlike the Soviet Union, we have these generations, these post-Soviet generations, that have traveled abroad, that speak, that to a greater degree speak foreign languages, that read foreign media, that are kind of see themselves as kind of plugged into global pop culture and global, you know, global global popular culture. That I don't think they're going to be as passive as their as their predecessors were. Do, do, do you agree? Uh, yes, to, to, to some extent. The, the problem is that the threshold for them uh, uh, lays in in the broader range. Yeah, I mean, it's like uh, like Soviet people were much more uniform. So the threshold was then they didn't have anything in the shops. And then they realized right. that their future is bleak. Uh, most of them uh, simultaneously realized there is a need for change. Uh, but currently, I mean, for some people, that the fact that the the, the elections were were rigged uh, is the trigger. But for the others, the trigger would be would would be much lower uh, or, or much higher, like mm-hmm. for uh, like 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 confiscation of property on one hand, or uh, kind of repressions against family members of the family. Or restrictions for going abroad, or mm-hmm. uh, or censorship. I mean, full total censorship. Yeah. So uh, that's that's different uh, today, and and we don't know uh, exactly. I mean, you cannot predict, and there's no sociological tools to do that. When this uh, massive differences would collide in a single point of mm-hmm. disagreement and, and and how this disagreement would work. Uh, so I, I think, I mean, coming to, 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 to one important point, um, the, you, you shouldn't underestimate the 
kind of the the, the, the singular moment when the Soviet system started to collapse. Mm-hmm. Reality it was Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. Uh, a massive nature, well, a massive handmade disaster, which was for an educated Soviet people, was clearly a danger. Mm-hmm. And the lies that came from the leadership of the Communist Party, the censorship of crucially important information about nuclear safety and things like that, the, the, the impossibility for Soviet leadership to isolate the, um, the situation of cleaning up, clean up Mm-hmm. From the masses, because I mean, the people were conscripted to do this. So then, then the thousands of liquidators of Chernobyl yep. uh, accident, they went across the country telling the truth, and like in 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 in, in several months, uh, this 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 major division between the reality and what Communist Party was trying mm-hmm. to uh, to convey as a message about this to, to the nation was completely destroyed. I mean, exposed mm-hmm. and therefore the validity of anything coming from Kremlin at this moment was completely discarded. So, That's interesting. That, that explains the hysterical reaction from the Kremlin about the, to, to the, to the documentary series on, on Chernobyl that, that, that aired yeah. a couple of years back. I do want to get in the second half into your, your kind of your research on censorship. You mentioned censorship, but before we do, I want to just hit briefly a couple of things that are kind of drill into what we've been talking about. Um, and that is how unified is the elite and how resilient is the opposition? I mean, because I think these are the two things going forward that are going to determine whether we go into this protracted period of stagnation or if we shift into this kind of, for lack of a better term, quasi-revolutionary instability. I know you don't like that term, but I can't think of a better one to, to replace it. But, yeah. but these are the two variables I'm looking at. How resilient is that opposition and how, how unified is the elite? How consolidated is the elite? Do you have any insights on those? Um, I would be very careful making remarks about opposition mm-hmm. uh, first because uh, because as always in Russia this is a very fragmented uh, thing mm-hmm. I mean people who uh, well genuinely support and participate in the Navalny movement there are people from libertarian uh, mm-hmm. descent uh, who who are also divided there are kind of uh, libertarians that uh, say, well, well, we can live with the Putin's regime, and there are libertarians who are the worst enemies. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a leftist part of the opposition, there is a p- nationalist part of the opposition, because, which thinks that Putin is not enough nationalist, and mm-hmm. he's uh, kind of not pro-Russian, uh, and doing too many concessions to minorities, and uh, especially in terms of um, religion. Uh, so, uh, so the opposition is fragmented. The opposition is not is not sharing the vision at all. There is a very limited number of things where kind of official opposition and unofficial opposition have similar things, sim- similar posi- positions in their agenda. One of which I think. Uh, is that future Russia should be parliamentarian. 
not mm. a presidential republic. I think that's one thing that uh, is generally uh, uh, shared by... Yeah, this is one of Khodorkovsky's uh, positions, right? Yes. It, it, I mean, Khodorkovsky is just uh, a sensitive uh, translator uh-huh. uh, rather than the originator of this mm. idea. Uh, but the fact that such a diverse and 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 uh, large country as Russia could not be ruled by a single person. I mean, mm-hmm. it should be ruled regionally with the within the legal framework which, which is created by the parliament, mm-hmm. and uh, and the government should be redesigned in order to serve kind of federal interest mm-hmm. uh, and assist the regional interest rather than sort of federal interest and rule right. the regional ones. So that that is probably the only thing. And and kind of the Republican movement in terms of uh, let's kind of make president less potent uh, is something that can be uh, a singular point that could unify the opposition. Which would be the, a sharp break from Russian history. <laughs> yes. But, but 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 it looks like kind of it it offers this larger window for a change, mm-hmm. a larger window for uh, representation, for expression. Yeah, and, I mean actually it's interesting. One of the uh, tools that Gorbachev thought to use and used to kind of engage wider Soviet society into the future of the of of the country was this uh, uh, Congress of People's Deputies. Mm-hmm. That was that was massive body with almost three thousand deputies. I mm-hmm. mean, which which on one hand was was created by Communist Party, and a lot of people there were were were, were kind of coming from the Communist Party rank and file. But on the other hand, it was large enough to include smaller, unrepresented dissent, and 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 and, and even even openly anti-Soviet groups, mm-hmm. which we, we, which allowed these voices to be heard, because, I mean... Well, another, Sakharov, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 that, and, that, and, that, and that kind of affected the dynamics of the late Soviet Union very seriously. Uh, similarly, kind of uh, modern Russia may feel a need, and maybe this is the point of kind of as we say, Tochka Sborki, yeah, the mm. the point of construction of right. the future, that the broader representation and actually rethinking of representation as such, is the thing that people would would join, uh, mm-hmm. would 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 follow as a flag. Mm. I mean, uh, at at present, I also working uh, on a project called called Reform IO, uh, 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 kind of in a very a very interesting collective effort of Russian expert community to create a positive agenda for this imagined future Russia mm-hmm. that would uh, kind of restart transition right. to to more uh, kind of resilient and clear uh, uh, system of government, system mm-hmm. of, uh, well, interhuman relations, uh, position in the world, organization of the society, everything. So we try to, to, to think there and publish quite extensively on issues that uh, connect today with the future, not the past. Mm, I mean, right. and, um, past, is, past is important, but, but what is important? We have the society today, very advanced actually, very diverse, very complex, 
much much less um, unified or divided uh, on on, on uh, than than let's say American society, mm-hmm. and, and we don't understand. I mean, what would be the principles? These people different of different nation of different religion of different different political uh, views. Where the point where they would agree for something, mm-hmm. and, and that would be agree for, not against. This is a very important thing. No, that's a that's a perfect segue to move into our second half, where I do want to talk about some of the some of the groundbreaking research you're doing. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and take a look at how political censorship is changing in Russia and what that means. Something our guest knows a thing or two about as it's the topic of his next book. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from my mother's hometown of Boston, Massachusetts, is veteran Russian scholar, political analyst, and journalist Vasily Gatov, a visiting fellow at the University of Southern California's Annenberg Center for Communication, Leadership, and Policy, and the author of a forthcoming book on censorship in the Russian media. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, and if you like us, please leave us a big five-star rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. So, Vasily, we've done several programs in the Power Vertical podcast that looked at how the current crackdown on dissent in Russia differs from its predecessors, how the nature of the uh, of this oppression is changing as the Putin regime enters its third decade. Now, you, I, I understand that you are working on a book about one aspect of this, specifically new forms of censorship. Uh, according to your webpage at USC, which I, I took a look at, you will seek to, quote, define the exact logic of the new censorship framework and expose its machinery. Um, you've obviously seen this phenomenon up close having worked at various Russian media outlets, including REN TV, Media 3, and RIA Novosti. So how is this new censorship different from the old censorship? Why is why is this not our father's censorship, if, if you will? Yeah, <laughs> grandfather. Uh, uh, well, uh, first, let's kind of, let, 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 let's delve into history for, for, for a few minutes. The original system of censorship that uh, existed in Soviet Union until 1980. 88 uh, uh, was in part borrowed from the Russian imperial system of censorship uh, and partly from the practices of military censorship during the times of war. Uh, The kind of the ideological framework of this censorship was uh, defined by Lenin in his uh, kind of seminal work uh, about party propaganda and party agitation, which stated that the freedom of speech in the communist society is freedom of people know the plans of the communist party. Mm -hmm. Because communist party is right in what it's doing for the working people. And therefore everything what it decides to convey to 
to to the population is the only thing that should be conveyed. That's it. So the Soviet censorship system relied on three basic principles. The filtration of the existing media in general. Mm -hmm. uh, so the libraries were cleaned up of books that Soviet system thought was undesirable. The uh, theatrical content was censored, even if it was centuries old. Uh, and uh, and most importantly, the imported culture was censored. So the, the, the Iron Curtain, one of the elements of Iron Curtain, was that only those elements of the outside cultural agenda or political agenda or, or social agenda were allowed to Soviet citizens if the censorship system allowed this 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 mm -hmm. to pe penetrate uh the the second pillow was the uh system of preliminary censorship everything what was printed in soviet union in in more than one copy no well i'm joking not more i <laughs> mean like in thousand copies uh, uh, was subjected to a control of the body that uh, is commonly known as Glavlit, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, its uh, full name was the Committee for Protection of the State Secrets in, in Press. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that was a mid-sized Soviet institution, tightly controlled by the party, uh, of people who read almost every line in every newspaper, radio broadcast, and television program prior to this thing being on air. Therefore, the Soviet television was never uh, live, mm -hmm. except probably soccer matches. Uh, uh, Soviet radio was slow. There was mm -hmm. no kind of... Uh, uh, breaking news coverage only only when it was reported by agencies and agencies are were censored as well uh, and and every line that Soviet people read in the newspapers was previously read by censor and vetted by mm. by, by this particular person uh, there is nothing comparable in censorship system today mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and it's different in nature because it doesn't first it doesn't employ preliminary censorship at all, so there is no uh, no kind of censors in in their kind of military way. Even uh, in, even on like Pierre V Canal, no channel, no. So kind of nobody except people engaged in the production of the particular show or particular newscast mm -hmm. and so on. Nobody touches their texts. So Soviet so current Russian system relies on self-censorship here, on, uh, on, on agenda setting rather than on direct control over the content. The second thing is that uh, uh, one of the lessons that uh, kind of FSB-based regime uh, learned from KGB-based history was that you don't have to control the broader context. Instead, you have to 
be able to instill the major messages through every possible channel. Rather than try to censor the thing, you jam it. Mm -hmm. But you're not jamming it on the entrance to the public sphere. You jam it within public sphere, and it works into the interest of the most um, present uh, messaging. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's difficult to understand with outside of the communication science con content. Uh, no, I, under, I understand. Yeah, but, 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 As a consumer of Russian media, I get it. <laughs> yeah, so so you have you have the loudest loudspeaker, anyway. I mean, channel one or right. what I see, and the message that is being spelled out there would always be louder than anything uh, opposing it, and that's where they control, where where they set the agenda rather than controlling everything and everywhere. Uh, and, and also, as I said, I mean, it mostly relies on self-censorship. People who work in media understand that their, well, their jobs are scarce. And if they want to remain in their positions or make career, earn better money, they better have kept, keep their mouths shut on the issues that are already explained to be important for the government or Putin or whatever. Now, I would uh, – uh, this is interesting. I mean, I, I, the, the, the distinction between the kind of Soviet-style censorship and the Putinist style of censorship is interesting, but the Putinist censorship has itself evolved over time. Um, yes. In the, in the early Putin period, we had safety valves like Echo Moskvi and Dosh TV that they allowed to pretty much do what they wanted in my, as far as I understood. They left the internet alone. Now they seem to be exerting more controls on these so-called safety valves like Dosh TV and, and Echo Moskvi and, and others. Um, they are making tighter controls on the internet. Um, mm -hmm. There are there's the possibility of prosecution for sharing or liking material the Kremlin deems the, the Kremlin doesn't like and deems quote unquote extremist. How do you see this new censorship evolving in the Putin period? Because there seems to have been several periods of this in the Putin period. Yes, uh, uh, and it's interesting you you noted few things, but 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 missed out others. Uh -huh. um, uh, one of the uh, one of the features of uh, kind of current, I mean, let's speak about what we see now. One of the features of the current uh, model is uh, that it is totally dependent on political messaging emanating from Kremlin and few other institutions of Russian power, namely Ministry of Defense, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and to much lesser extent, powerful regional governors like Sabyanin, Moscow mayor of Moscow. These sort of major power, information powers, they produce the agenda themselves constantly. This is very different from, uh, from Soviet times. Uh, and that's very kind of modern in a good way. I mean, you have a lot of messages coming from government, from ministers, from Putin, from Putin's spokesperson, from uh, Putin apparatus. And these messages uh, are immediately kind of interweaved with what is agenda. I mean, what is real agenda, the news agenda. Mm -hmm. uh, 
sometimes, not often, but sometimes, uh, Russian government-controlled media uh, kind of falls into uh, sort of a specific pressure regime when everything happening in Russia is connected with Putin. Uh, the, the, there were several examples when Programma Vreme, the, the main newscast of Russian um, state television, consisted of like 18 pieces, 17 of which were about Putin. I mean, mm -hmm. Putin making foreign policy, Putin making domestic policy, Putin uh, attending cultural event, Putin... Uh, saying something about school education, Putin with sports and Putin with animals, <laughs> everything. All all the issues were covered by Putin. And Skaragavorka, uh, uh, the, the thing that, uh, uh, that, that that makes your jaw, I mean, jawbreaker. 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 Yeah, I, I did not know that word in Russian. Now I do. Skaragavorka. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, it's one that, uh, for for r, for Russian r лесо, грека через реку, видит грека в реке рак. And uh, uh, it was uh, remade by... Uh, I would by call the, that a tongue twister in English, actually. Yeah, tongue twister, yeah. And the uh, the, the journalist said that this this время uh, broadcast, which which are all about Putin, is ехал Путин через Путин, видит Путин в реке Путин. So... So, 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 so that's 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 the thing that uh, very much reminds cult of personality, but in fact carries completely different uh, goal in mind. It's about making a connection uh, of everything positive that happens in society with Putin, and everything mm. opposite, uh, everything negative is against Putin. That's mm. that's that, that's very different from Stalin's cult of personality mm -hmm. uh, so so the, the and, and that very much is done not for propagating Russian citizens about Putin's greatness or Putin's activities but about delivering the messages to other communicators how they should address things mm -hmm. it's kind of an instructive form of agenda setting mm -hmm. and Again, as I already said, that works much better than direct censorship, or uh, that works much faster in terms of how it plays into uh, semi-independent people or in journalism or editorial organizations that has nothing to do with the political agenda. They just realize, oh, that's the message. I mean, we need to connect everything what is good with Putin and everything what is bad with uh, some external forces that try to uh, oust Putin or change the regime. Now, how does this work on uh, outlets that are not controlled by the state? Um, I mentioned Dost and I mentioned Echo. Um, there was, I mean, there, I would have, I would have a couple of years ago mentioned Vietnamese, of course. Um, I would still mention Nova Gazeta. Um, but how does this work on these kind of non-systemic medias? Well, there is a, a legal framework for them that even for these people who are viciously independent and oppositional in their thinking and work. Uh, it's called Chapter 4 of Russian uh, media law. Uh, inadmissibility of uh, 
они же о недопустимости злоупотребления свободой слова. And misability of misuse of the freedom of speech. Misusing freedom of speech, yeah. yeah. Abuse of freedom of speech. Yeah, yeah. initially, when the, the law was adopted in 1991, it mentioned uh, almost exact replica of European Declaration of Human Rights, that you, you, don't, you, you cannot use media for promulgating uh, aggressive war, uh, mm, uh, ethnic hatred, uh, so ethnic hatred, and so on. So it was like 31 words in this article, right. in, uh, in this chapter of, uh, of of the law. Then they started to edit it, adding first very strange and obscure thing, like you cannot use media to uh, in order to exercise uh, neural programming using 25th uh, frame in. Uh, uh -huh. Right. And things like that. Uh, and the people who've been safeguarding the media law said, oh, that's that's a funny thing. They believe in it, but okay, we will not oppose this ed editing. Mm -hmm. But then in 2001, they started to edit it seriously. First, using a Chechen war and Chechen uh, uh, inflicted terrorism in, in, in Russia as a reason to uh, forbid to, for media to uh, cover... Uh, let's say, internal conflict from the side of insurgents, making it kind of criminally dangerous. Then they, they, they expanded it to all political extremism, sort of making it um, compliant to the law against extremism. Uh, as we say, Putshumok, I mean, under the sound cover of this big right. change, uh, apparently the propagation of war somehow disappeared from this article. And when people in, 19, in 2014 started to say, why these people on the state TV, they call for war with Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's forbidden by Russian law. I said, it's not forbidden by Russian law. Russian law has changed. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and you can't do anything with this. So now this article that forbids things from uh, ranging from uh, not allowing to report the methods of suicide, to uh, mm, uh, a ban to, to, to use the, the, the name of the organizations that have been uh, banned in Russia or uh, recognized as um, extremist or uh, undesirable uh, should be reported if, if you need, I mean, with mentioning that this, is, this, is, this organization are bad and undesirable. Uh, now it's about 1,500 words mm. of things so death, that are... So it's death by a thousand cuts, effectively. Yeah, so, and, and actually, even for places like, uh, for media places like Nova Gazeta or Echo Moskvi, a lot of things are just formally banned. Mm. Uh, you still can do something on that, but you have to consider that every step into this direction uh, may be uh may have consequences from the media regulator who will first warn you about inadmissible violation and then the next time you lose the license and if you do it like five times even losing the license and being kind of licensed again then you can have criminal consequences for mm -hmm. the journalist and editor and then you can and you can always suffer the fate yeah. of the suffered by yeah, your, yeah. your newspaper being bought by a yes. Kremlin friendly oligarch so, 
yeah so so that's that's where where where, where kind of the soft border is because this mm. is this is not very kind of hard border uh you mean you, you can walk over it but uh, but you have to understand that that there 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 are then dangers behind the second the second thing that uh that that that, that still uh limits the opportunities even for the most independent media is uh that uh the sources of information would be more and more cautious dealing with the people who are openly independent or openly opposing Kremlin, and the, you cannot do good journalism without access to sources of information. Right, right. So, government... so they hit the supply side, right? Yeah, yeah. And the third is economic. Uh, almost all independent media today in Russia rely on crowdfunding, private funding from very limited number of wealthy individuals. Or like Echo Moskvi, uh, a mixture of uh, kind of wealthy advertising and uh, uh, funding from the state-controlled institution, right. Gazprom Media, which was just told to keep this pain in the ass because we need it. Right, it. right. We're bumping up against the end, Vasily, but one thing I did want to hit on before we, we wrapped it up is social media and the internet because there's the, this is another a big factor in the media environment now. Um, and how – I mean I, we, we know some of the ways that, that, that this is censored, um, laws that, 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 that allow for the prosecution of people who share or like content that the Kremlin doesn't like. Um, and they deem it, deem it whatever extremist or whatever else they want to deem it. Um, how else are they handling the social media? I mean, I see a little bit of the flooding of the zone, which you talked about earlier in terms of the the, the traditional media. But just a, a few words on social media before we before we close it out. Uh, well, it's an interesting question. Probably uh, worth an entire podcast. I understand. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but, but I will I will I will briefly round it up. Uh, the situation is very different across different social media platforms. Uh, some of them, like Russian-controlled Vkontakte, fully cooperates with uh, Russian security. Therefore, everything what is unconventional from the political point of view in Vkontakte uh, possesses a direct criminal danger for a person who posts it. Uh, well, the, the problem is that uh, the Russian criminal law, <clears throat> uh, even this media-related things, it requires the investigator to establish a direct connection with the personality of the accused and the act that he's mm -hmm. accused for. And for his Facebook, Twitter, and uh, Instagram, Instagram. Yeah. yeah, they never gave up the personal data of account holders, therefore preventing uh, investigators to establish a direct link between mm. the person and the the message. Mm. Therefore, there are very few think singular examples that the, the political activity on uh, American social networks resulted problems for Russians. It's when they except when Apple and Google removed Navalny's app. Yeah, that's 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 that, 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 that's another thing. But this is this is more about 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 data breach rather than about mm. about anything else. Um, so 
I mean, not that it's absolutely safe to curse on Putin on Facebook. Mm. But it's definitely more safe than to do it contact. Contact, right. yeah. Uh, and uh, so far, Russia tries, but not successfully, to instill some kind of post-censorship control over the social networks if they want to operate in Russia. They continuously send um, requests of removal. And in some cases, Facebook and Twitter do that, especially when, when this request is logical, like it's about, uh, I don't know, Muslim revenge or jihad. Uh, uh, sometimes they don't react and they're being fined for that and the fines already counted in 100 million rubles for both. Uh, as far as Google is concerned, it's more complex because I mean, Google is so infrastructural to the internet that uh, it simultaneously realizes the necessity to continue service to Russians. So not to be banned from delivering the service and not to be banned from making the business because what Google does, it earns money. Mm -hmm. I mean, showing us everything, results of the search, show, I mean, using, using Gmail, using uh, other platforms. Uh, uh, so Google very selectively agrees with mm -hmm. uh, Roskomnadzor requests. Mm -hmm very selectively it's like i think i've just seen a stat from 2020 that roskomnadzor asked 707,000 times to remove something from google uh -huh. and almost oh, less than one percent was uh, mm -hmm. fulfilled by, by google uh so 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 far i mean russia is trying something but not achieving with this recent act when they removed Navalny up from uh, Apple store and Google Play store uh, it signifies a new moment for both uh, primarily for for Google because that's the first case with Apple and Apple is much less dependent on Russia mm -hmm. in, in its revenue streams and uh, and else so now for Google, it's 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 a moment, uh, well, kind of a, a moment of truth. Yeah, I mean, mm. either they now comply with everything that Russia asked them because they already said, I mean, we put money, this billion dollars we earn in Russia, affront everything, mm -hmm. uh, affront affront sort of power of good, uh, independence, and so on, and. Or we 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 we, we uh, sort of we we do do good. I mean, like mm. Google always says that we are for good. Don't be well, evil. Don't be evil. Yeah. And and this is uh, I think this this becomes a very important question for Google Alphabet shareholders because it it should be decided there, like it was with China. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's time for Sergey Brin and Larry Page, at least, to kind of to say, I mean, we don't like it. And uh, and because, again, Google is so infrastructural, 
so many services, so many login procedures, so many uh, design elements, everything. I mean, analytics, the, the, the standard for everything. Uh, I mean, it's so much, the world is so much dependent on Google and Russian mm -hmm. internet economy is so much depending on Google that this is a critical moment for mm -hmm. Google to stand up okay. and say, this is unacceptable, we won't do that, try to do something against us. Yeah, we no, are I, I, yeah, I, w I would agree with you. We we have some extremely difficult decisions to make our, our you know, a, as a society here in the West about this and how how complicit we want our companies to to be in this. Vasily, we could continue this forever. I, I am certain, and I'm sure we will continue it in the future. Um, although if I go much longer, I think my producers will will uh, <laughs> will kill me. So I'm gonna have to unfortunately wrap it up. But we I, I we we've raised so many issues that I want to continue on. I hope you'll come back on again soon this is your first time on the podcast but I, I i truly hope it's not the last time um and unfortunately that is all we have time for today i have to wrap it up i'd like to remind you you have been listening to the power vertical podcast which is produced by the university of texas arlington's mcdowell center for global studies in partnership with the atlantic council's eurasia center i'm your host my name is brian whitmore i'm an assistant professor of practice at the uta mcdowell center and a non-resident senior fellow at the atlantic council's eurasia center joining me from my mother's hometown of boston massachusetts has been veteran russian scholar political analyst and journalist vasily Gatov, a visiting fellow at the University of Southern California's Annenberg Center of Communication, Leadership, and Policy, and author of a forthcoming book on censorship in the Russian media, which you all should read when it comes out. I know I will. Vasily, thanks for an enlightening and lively discussion. It was a pleasure to be with It's you. always a pleasure to see you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Mariah Jalad handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making all of us sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Powerful Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do and if you like us, please leave us a big five-star rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products on powervertical.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.